the extraordinary dysfunction of the U.S. Congress is not a secret. And there was a lot of skepticism from the outset that the administration could deliver on this pledge. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The World Bank and International Monetary Fund's annual meetings are taking place in Morocco this month. And for the first time in a long time, there is real momentum around enacting reforms to how these decades-old institutions operate. A big boost to a reform agenda came at the G20 meeting in India in early September, when President Biden backed a reform agenda to increase the World Bank's capacity to support low- and middle-income countries with better loans aimed at promoting sustainable development. He also announced that he'd ask Congress for an additional $25 billion for the World Bank. This was significant for a number of reasons. First, it demonstrated a responsiveness to the criticism of developing world countries who have long sought better financing options for climate-compliant economic development projects. Second, the U.S. is the largest shareholder at the World Bank, so what the U.S. president says carries a great deal of weight. On the line to discuss some of the proposed reforms and the many political pitfalls along the way is Karen Matheson, Project Director at the Center for Global Development. We kick off with a discussion of why the World Bank needs reform in the first place before having a longer conversation about the proposals now on the table. So one quick announcement before we start. I know a number of listeners out there work on Capitol Hill for members of Congress. On Thursday, October 12th, I'll be holding a lunch event on Capitol Hill for congressional staffers. If you are a Hill staffer and would like to attend, please use the contact button on globaldispatches.org and I will send you the info. I hope to see many of you there. Now, here is my conversation with Karen Matheson of the Center for Global Development. To kick off, can I just have you make the case for why it is that the World Bank and the IMF need reform? 
So I'm more familiar with the World Bank than the IMF. Essentially, I think there are two drivers of reform. One is this really big central question of how is the World Bank dealing with global challenges and how can it do better? Now, for many of the shareholders, many of the donors, you know, this means climate change, but for others, it's much broader than that and includes things like pandemic preparedness and fragility and vulnerability and so forth. I think that really started to get people thinking hard about what is the best role for the World Bank in dealing with these and how can we make it fit for purpose? Because while um, the bank previous leadership certainly made commitments around climate, I think it felt a little bit ad hoc and around the edges. So that's the first thing. The second is on the financing side. And, you know, for years, there's been a perception among shareholders that the MDBs are really too conservatively managed. They are so, so cautious and that there are potentially billions of dollars that are sitting idle. This is a very hard conversation to have as somebody who's uh, been a shareholder and had this debate at the World Bank, for example, and there are reasons for that are basically one, we don't get access to a lot of information. It's considered too sensitive, you know, and two, it's really hard to know this issue better than people who live and breathe it every single day for decades. Those are the two big driving agenda issues that have helped get us where we are today. And it's sort of lack of progress on both those issues that have led to this seemingly like renewed call for reform that seems to be embraced at a fairly high level, including by the G20 and by the president of the United States, President Biden, as well, very explicitly at the G20 meeting in India, and then again at the UN General Assembly, called for World Bank reform and multilateral development bank reform. What sort of happened at the G20 that was so significant to that end? So this is extraordinary. I mean, to have a U.S. president come to a G20 summit with development reform as a centerpiece is just unprecedented. I think probably not since the foundation of Bretton Woods institutions will you find either at the G7 or the G20, that kind of focus. And I think that, again, reflects a very strong sense within the U.S. administration that the World Bank really is best positioned to address the climate change issues. They have uh, global footprints, extremely good relationships with their shareholders, borrowers in particular, and technical capacity, expertise, and then all the suite of kind of oversight that would be important to the U.S. So it seemed to me that was a very logical decision. And then, in addition, from a financing perspective, it's such a good deal because you can put in a pretty small amount and you can leverage a lot. So I think for those reasons, President Biden was convinced that this was an issue worth making a big priority. And what specifically did Biden call for? He called for, first, a lot more funding for middle-income countries through sort of an innovative global goods solutions 
trust fund is what I believe the term of art was that would focus on global challenges. And again, just to flag for listeners that there is quite a bit of debate over what that means, but at least within the U.S., which is reticent to say climate change, that is clearly what is meant. So we called for this and then said, and look, and I'm going to back it up by putting $2.25 billion emergency funding for the World Bank and a little over, you know, $1 billion would be used to help with this global challenges agenda. And then there would be additional funding to support the poorest, the countries that can't borrow from what we refer to as the World Bank's kind of regular hard loan window. So mostly Sub-Saharan Africa. So we put that offer out on the table and went to the G20. And I think, as we know, unfortunately, the offer was not I mean, it wasn't rejected, not by the World Bank, but it didn't get a lot of traction with the other G20. Yeah, why is that? Why didn't it get more traction? Because the intention, I suppose, was that the U.S. pledges to make this big financial contribution with the expectation that other countries would step up as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you can see that in Jake Sullivan made some remarks heading into the G20 summit leaders meeting, making that case exactly, that we're going to be able to double our impact because we think others will come in with us. So why didn't they? Well, I think first, the extraordinary dysfunction of the U.S. Congress is not a secret. And there was a lot of skepticism from the outset that the administration could deliver on this pledge. And I think with extremely good reason, we saw what went down just recently with the effort to keep the government open. And that alone, you know, proved to be extraordinarily difficult. And they rejected even funding for Ukraine, which was in the supplemental, which frankly, I think is, you know, a a bigger priority for the administration. So I think getting the U.S. Congress to care about the World Bank has got to be one of the toughest challenges from a legislative strategy point of view that I can think of. And if you're like Emmanuel Macron or other members of the G20, I mean, you can look to see what's happening in Washington and rightly surmise that this pledge won't be followed through with actual dollar amounts anytime soon. Yeah, exactly. So what was interesting to me is that there was sort of silence around all that. And then shortly thereafter, Germany made a pledge to support this. There's going to be a new financial instrument called hybrid capital that the World Bank is introducing. And the idea here is that you could buy shares in the World Bank, but they are non-voting. And that will help buttress the balance sheet a little bit. And and then the prime minister of the UK indicated to his parliament that they're now open to a capital increase, which I'm confident did not go over well in this country. So let's let's kind of focus on this idea of a capital increase because it is something that I think many in the advocacy community and, and experts agree is like long overdue. The idea that the World Bank just needs like more money to give out, but it is kind of like politically fraught and geopolitically fraught as well. And it seems to be 
the politics of this seem to be a real barrier to enacting meaningful reform. So just to maybe like for those who, who are not familiar, unlike, say, the United Nations, the World Bank, voting is apportioned by share. It's not one country, one vote. You have more shares like regular bank, you get more sway. The United States is the single largest shareholder. It has the most sway. But if you were to increase the total capital available, it means other countries could buy in. Presumably, that means China, and, and China would be able to increase its influence and leverage at the World Bank. Is that basically the kind of political dynamic we're talking about? So in the past, the last few go-rounds, every time there is what's called, so a general capital increase is where all shareholders put in money proportional to its voting share, as you say. And the the U.S. has just over 17%, and so it pays the most. So then the question is, well, who determines these shares? And the answer is, there's a formula that has been very painstakingly agonizingly negotiated over in the past that more or less looks at economic weight and then other factors like their contribution to IDA. And when I say IDA, I'm referring to this mostly grant window that supports the poorest countries. And that's the International Development Association. Exactly. So a general capital increase only affects the middle income window, the big window that supports your really big borrowers for the most part. And Emerging markets, for example. Not the poorest of the poor. No, they do not have access and because they don't have the debt capacity. So essentially, that's how it works. And then in conjunction with this is a shareholding review. So management says, all right, let's see how we're doing. How aligned are current shareholdings with these principles? And what they found last time is, oof, not really well, that China really needed a boost. And other countries, particularly small European countries, but also Russia and Saudi, they really needed to go down. This is a huge challenge because at the end of the day, it is 100%. You cannot make this add up to anything more. So it's one pie, same size, and then you have to divvy it up. So some get more and some get less. So it's a painstaking negotiation. And so this would make it extremely difficult for the United States, for the U.S. to have to go to Congress and say, well, one, we want to put more money in. Two, we want it for global challenges, which they will certainly know means climate, you know, which for reasons that remain unfathomable to me, many people in Congress still don't accept as the urgent issue that it is. And three, by the way, China's going to up its share. So that's why this is so difficult. Now, there is an option to say, you know what, we'll do a capital increase, but we can't do the shareholding review right now. It's too polarizing, bad environment for it. So let's do that. And then, of course, the countries that deserve more shares are going to be very unhappy. They haven't pursued that option yet, but I'm spitballing here. My guess is if the United States responded to what I think is some significant pressure to move ahead with the general capital increase, that might be the only way. But before we move on, I do want to take a pause and talk about something that gets no recognition, which is the World Bank is not squeezed at the moment. It has additional lending capacity that is not being met. 
And so while they're prepared to change the mission statements and vision statements to include livable planet, to share prosperity and eliminating absolute poverty, what that means in terms of what the borrowers want is really unclear. Because what if you have a big effort to put new capital in and big countries say, yeah, thanks, but we don't really want to borrow for this. So that, I think, remains an open question that no one's terribly comfortable asking. Now, the U.S. has put forward an interesting proposal saying, okay, look, in the event that we need extra sweetener to get these countries to borrow for climate, let's give them generous terms, like really generous, close to what they even had when they were Ida countries, again, when they borrowed from the poorest window. That's an extraordinary shift in mindset for the U.S. and others. So that's number one. But point two is, okay, if you're in a really expanding donor pie, maybe, but we are not in an expanding donor pie. We are in a pie which is pretty much stuck and where in size and where more and more donors are putting money into things like Ukraine. And not only Ukraine directly, but they're actually funding refugees in their home countries and categorizing that as foreign assistance. So the tension that I see is you have the poorest countries with exceptional needs still recovering from the impact of the pandemic and the increase in natural disasters, the growing toll that climate is taking on them in terms of food security in particular, but not only a high interest rate environment, reduced capital flows, and of course, the blockade of the grain shipments. So they're really, really hurting. And, you know, the World Bank put out a call to say, okay, we really need more money this year to respond to the emergency. And boy, has that been met with a deafening silence. I mean, the U.S. came forward with this $1 billion, which is fantastic. I don't think they've ever done an off-cycle pledge like this for the poorest. But I think there's a recognition, as sad as it is, that that is not money that Congress is going to appropriate. So I, I just wanted to flag that particular dynamic. So when I was at the United Nations during the UN General Assembly last month, you know, I attended a number of meetings with representatives of the you know, middle-income and lower-income countries, both IDA, the, the countries that are eligible, the lower-income countries that are eligible for those you know, deeply concessional loans, and middle-income countries. And there was just this persistent critique that they were unable to access good loans with generous terms over a very long time horizons to do the kinds of development that they need to do to grow their economies in an environmentally sustainable way. Just the frustration was palpable. And, you know, it seems, based on what you're describing, that the Biden administration is trying to nudge the World Bank in that direction. But based on what you're saying is it's just not big enough or fast enough kinds of, of reforms to really satisfy the needs of middle-income and lower-income countries. 
You know, well, at the end of the day, though, if you're trying to provide loans on the terms that these countries are talking about, you need grants. The World Bank is not going to be able to, they can produce very long, long tenured loans on their own through their own debt issuances, which is how the World Bank raises money. But for them to remain sustainable from a capital perspective, they have to on-lend you know, at very low rates, sort of triple A rates, but they can't on lend at what I think a lot of countries would like, which is below market. And again, that is what is provided for the IDA countries. And it's expensive. That funding needs to come from donors. And I think that's the fundamental disconnect there. And I think you see it manifesting in a couple of ways on the donor side. You know, one, the sort of fixation on the capital adequacy measures because it lets them off the hook is sort of one way they're handling it. And then two is this focus on the private sector agenda, which has really failed to deliver on any scale as hoped. You know, the idea was the World Bank spends a million and they generate a billion. They leverage a billion of the private sector. It was the millions to trillions agenda, millions to billions to trillions. And Really, what tends to happen is one dollar of official capital rarely even leverages another dollar. So the shareholders are back on this uh, on this again, but it's really not clear to me how they're going to wring any more money out of the private sector to meet development goals. So that's kind of where they're trying to get people, you know, look over here. But the result is that it has created a very big trust deficit with a lot of these poor countries in particular. And, you know, the more countries commit and fail to meet the commitments, the wider that trust deficit will grow. So we're speaking just a few days ahead of the next big meeting of the World Bank and IMF in Marrakesh, Morocco. What will you be looking towards? What will you be following in particular during those meetings? I sort of like to make three broad points about this annual meeting. So the first is the really unusually high degree of interest in them. I mean, these are are usually very quiet events. This podcast episode, you know, case in point. Yeah, exactly. And we had a press roundtable this morning and something like 10 people appeared. It's crazy. So I think, you know, the reason for that is there's a lot of pressure on these institutions right now to respond effectively to these various crises. And, you know, we haven't talked about the IMF, but there's a real lot of pressure on them too, I think, especially on the debt side. All of this is happening in the context of growing polarization. So it's a big test for these institutions. So what I'll be looking for in Marrakesh is, well, how are they, you know, are they meeting the test? Are they passing the test? And it's frankly, it will not be possible to conclude one way or the other in Marrakesh. It's premature. I hear a lot of people saying, you know, time is running out. And I I don't know what that means in terms of these institutions. You know, at what point will they be considered less relevant? And what does that mean? I don't know. So I mentioned earlier the change in the mission statement in a livable planet. And that is going to be the big outcome for the World Bank. And they have embraced eight global challenges, which is a lot. I think it was an effort to make everyone happy. 
including Ajay Banga, I suspect, because it includes digitalization, which I have never heard referred to as a global challenge. You know, I think that will be, uh, to the extent that there's any noise, that will be it. But then the question is, well, what the heck does that mean? (laughs) And what does it mean operationally? And again, what does it mean from a research perspective? And that's going to be the big question that is only going to get bigger and more uncomfortable. You know, efforts to stretch the balance sheet are going to help, but only so far. And again, just to remind your listeners, those efforts only help the middle-income countries. They do not help the poorest. I mean, many of the poorest need just outright grants. That's it. They cannot afford to take loans on even at 50 years with 1% or 2% interest rate. That's how badly off they are. And then, you know, the dynamic I'll be watching is on the donor side, because you have, I think, quite a bit of tension with the U.S. pushing for its guarantees, I think recognizing that that's going to have less and less traction, if anything, because of what's going on with the supplemental, and then Germany for hybrid capital, and then the U.K., and I think perhaps France for a general capital increase. So they're all rowing in different directions, which is just not a good thing especially now. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Karen. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.